Let's pray together. Father, you know the needs, the deep, spiritual, personal, physical, marital, family, church, vocational needs in this room. And your heart is to meet them in ways that people never dreamed when they came here. And so I pray that you would use every speaker to do that. Just having lunch today with friends, all of us aching for our children, makes me realize the amount of yearning, longing, spiritual desire there is in this room for our own souls, for the souls of our children, grown children and little children, and for our churches to see Christ for who he really is and bow down. So, Father, forbid that these days would be wasted. Grant, I pray, that you would come in power. Oh, Father, in the name of Jesus, by your Spirit, through your Word, come. May all that Jonathan Edwards stood for, longed for, preached for, died for, come true. Let there be in our day a remarkable awakening to the supremacy of your glory in all things for the joy of all peoples through Jesus Christ. So come, Father, exceedingly and abundantly beyond all that I could ask or think, work in this room now, I pray. Through Christ. Amen. No dead teacher outside the Bible has had more influence on me than Jonathan Edwards. And therefore, I am thankful in this 300th uh, year of the anniversary of his birth to be able to honor him with you. So I do see myself as coming here to pay a debt to Jonathan Edwards and to honor his memory. It is theological for me. It is spiritual for me. And it is deeply personal for me. I love Jonathan Edwards. And I know it isn't your purpose or mine to exalt a man too highly, but it says very plainly in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, Honor those who so labor among you. And he has labored hard and I have come into his labor. I have been transformed by his vision of God. And it is a tremendous pleasure to honor him with you in these days. And uh, it may be, I have no idea about these things, that God would be pleased to grant Jonathan Edwards some glimpse of the fruit of his labor as he watches what goes on around the world today, perhaps. I don't know. That's speculation. <laughs> Just a little tip about how to listen to this message. Um, some people are writing listeners and some are just listening listeners and are frustrated that they can't remember a little thing here, a little thing there. Um, I will put this message on the Desiring God website uh, tomorrow. And so if you have access to a computer, you may simply get this manuscript within two or three days, which might free up some of you just to sit back and listen and then just go get it 
and have everything you wished you'd written down or didn't care about writing down. Uh, so there's just a warning. Desiringgod.org is, is the place where you get in. I'll just, I'll just email it this afternoon to, I finished writing it about midnight last night. And so it, it's pretty fresh for me. And I think I've seen one or two new things for myself and I hope for you. So I think he would be most honored now if I directed your attention to uh, the greatness of his God so that you would see God and savor God and show him to be supreme and beautiful and valuable. I think he would want me to say that when I say the word God in this talk, I do not mean Allah, the God of Islam, and I do not mean the God of Contemporary Christ-rejecting Judaism. I mean the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I mean the God that you do not have if you do not have His Son. That's the God I'm talking about. So don't just take this G-O-D word and fill it up with all the things that are used for it. I mean something very Trinitarian and very Christ-exalting when I say God. But I'm not going to try to attach all those qualifying words every time I use the word God. I'm just going to say at the outset, when you hear the word God in Edwards and in me, you know you mean the God you do not have if you do not have His Son in a life of faith and worship. That needs to be said over and over again since 9-11. The church wimped out big time in many public arenas in refusing to talk about the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't want to make that mistake. I have become more self-consciously Christocentric as well as theocentric in the days since then. And I needed to make that plain because Edwards would, I think, want it made plain. The greatest lesson that I learned from Jonathan Edwards was the lesson that when his people, when God's people delight in God, God is glorified in and by that delight. That's the main lesson that I have learned from Jonathan Edwards. All I do to add to Edwards is make it rhyme. <laughs> Namely, by saying, God is most glorified in you, when you are most satisfied in him, which means that you never have to choose between your joy and God's glory. In fact, you dare not choose between your joy and God's glory. And therefore, it means you must always pursue your greatest joy to the glory of God by pursuing your joy in God. So here's my question today. How does this fundamental truth that runs through Edwards, and I believe is pretty close to the center of his theology, how does this fundamental truth that delighting in God is the means by which we glorify God, how does that fundamental truth relate to the necessary godly sufferings and sorrows of the people of God. And I have three of them in mind because they're the three that Edwards deals with. 
the sorrow of repentance, the sorrow of self-denial, and the sorrow of reproaches for Christ. How does this overarching deep truth that we are most glorifying to God when he is most satisfying to us relate to the sorrows of repentance and the sorrows of self-denial and the sorrows of reproach. And I didn't think up that question. I was confronted by that question, not only intrinsically, but in a sermon that Edwards preached when he was 20 years old, which I will get to shortly. So first, let's set the stage by turning to the religious affections. And I, I could almost wish that you would all have texts in your hand so that we could actually look at the, the glorious wording of Edwards over and over. So be sure, since this conference is focusing on the religious affections, and it is the most important book he wrote probably on the Christian life. Uh, if people ask me, where should I begin with Edwards? I generally say begin with the religious affection. So if you don't have it, you never read it, do get it. It's in paperback from, from a Banner of Truth Trust. It's in the big two-volume work. It's in the second volume of the Yale editions. If you want to pay a mint to have it, then there is a way to get it. And I think every Christian should try to get through it. So we go there now. In his third section, he gives 12 signs of the sincerity or the authenticity of religious affections. How can you know that the, the affections or the heartfelt emotions you have for God are real, are authentic? are spiritual, are rooted in a spiritual sight of divine reality rather than being rooted in natural phenomena. And there are all kinds of emotions that arise from natural things like music or good preaching and not God. And so the question is, and he wrestled with it and he preached these sermons in 1742, 43, finally published them in, I think, 46 it was after the two waves of the Great Awakening came through and he was wrestling with how to discern who's genuine and who is not in a revival setting where emotions run very high. And there are many manifestations that may or may not be authentic. So in this third section, he gives 12 evidences or signs of authenticity. And the last one is Christian behavior. Let me read this to you. Gracious and holy affections have their exercise and fruit in Christian practice. I mean, they have that influence and power upon him who is the subject of them that they cause that practice, which is universally conformed to and di directed by Christian rules, should be, they cause that practice, should be, the practice and business of his life. In other words, to paraphrase, the evidence of the authenticity of Christian emotion or affection towards God is that those emotions are of such a nature that they have influence and power to change your behavior and make it into a godly behavior. 
In other words, he says, the reason changed life of practical love and godliness is the chief and necessary evidence. Gives it the chief among all the 12 signs. The chief and necessary evidence of gracious and holy affections is that these affections have that influence and power that they cause that practice. Now, a warning here. That might sound a little bit overblown if you were to take it to mean perfectionism. Edwards was not a perfectionist. He disapproved of the Wesleyan perfectionism of his day, and he knew it. It was contemporary with him. And he said, there will never be in this world an entire purity, either in particular saints by a perfect freedom from mixtures of corruption or in the church of God without any mixture of hypocrites with the saints or counterfeit religion and false appearances of grace with true religion and real holiness. It'll never happen in this age, so don't, don't hear him saying authentic affections are proven to be real when they necessarily produce a change of behavior. Don't take that to mean a perfection of behavior, but a real change of godliness and of love. Your life takes on a new direction, if not a new perfection. Now, he knew there was such a thing as hypocrisy. You could begin with certain kinds of efforts to look on the outside like a whited sepulchre, like a Christian. Here's what he said in a sermon in 1738 called Wicked Men Inconsistent with Themselves. The outward show of wicked men disagrees with their heart. They very often make an appearance that is exceedingly different and contrary to what they really are inwardly. They have the clothing of sheep, but the nature of wolves. They are like whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Now, this means, therefore, that true Christian practice must rise from authentic holy affections. That's the difference between a hypocrite and an authentic saint. Both can, up to a point, look very similar on the outside. But the one is having that behavior born by fruit from authentic, godly, spiritual, Christ-based affections, and the other by some kind of outward duty and pressure of society or desire in worldly ways to make some impression. And there's a world of difference between those two people. Affections, therefore, are necessary to practice, and practice is necessary to affections. You see how it works both ways. In order to not be a hypocrite on the outside, you must have your behavior drawn up from authentic affections. And for those affections to be authentic, they must yield a changed life of love and godliness. It works both ways. And the implication of that now is that the main fight in the universe is the fight to delight in God. To have authentic religious affections. The behavior that pleases God 
must come from spiritual affections and spiritual affections must yield Christian love or there's authenticity on both counts, the behavior and the affection. So this is the main battle of the universe. Now, this, the central thesis, therefore, of the religious affections goes like this. This is an amazing book. It's what is it? Four or five hundred pages long. And it has one text. First Peter one eight, which says. Whom have whom having not seen referring to Christ, whom having not seen ye love in whom, though now ye see him not yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. And then he states the thesis and develops it in 400 pages. True religion, in great part, consists in the affections. True religion, in great part, consists in the affections. Now, to me, that is so self-evident, I wonder why anybody would need to write a book to defend it. But once you get around, especially in reformed circles, you realize why this book is necessary. There are an incredible number of Calvinists who don't believe it. They're very bad Calvinists. <laughs> and I just got back from Scotland and England. And I think the book would have to be published there as well. True religion consists much in the affections. Now, here's what he means by the affections. Just give you a sentence from the religious affections. The book, quote, the Holy Scriptures do everywhere place religion very much in the affections, such as fear, hope, love, hatred, desire, joy, sorrow, gratitude, compassion and zeal, close quote. And he says that the most essential one or the root one that gives rise to all the others is love. However, if you said that today with no qualification, nobody in America would understand what he means. Therefore, we may not leave it there because I think love well, it's just there's just so many things people read into love. We can't leave it there. We need to let Edwards define it. In this context, what Edwards means by saying among that whole array of affections, love is the root one. He means delight. That's what love means in this context. Like you love hot fudge. You don't do anything for hot fudge. You don't serve it. You don't dutifully consume it. You delight in it. That's what love means in this context. Now, I'll, I'll give you a sentence to show you that that's the case and why it, therefore, is the root of all the others. Here's what he says. Religious affections, part one, section 2.5. Love is not only one of the affections, but it is the first and chief of the affections and the fountain of all the affections from love arises hatred 
of those things which are contrary to what we love or which oppose and thwart us in the things we delight in. Do you hear that parallelism? Read it again. It gives rise to hatred of those things which are contrary to what we love, that is, which oppose what we delight in. So love and delight in, in this context, not every context, read all people contextually, biblical people and others. He means the emotion or the affection that gives rise to the others is delight in God, which means that the battle for joy, the battle to delight in God is the battle of the universe. The battle to be satisfied in God is the main battle of the universe. And I mean that absolutely literally. I mean it cosmically. I mean it universally. There is no greater battle in the heavens, in hell, on earth, under the earth, in Iraq, or anywhere else, there is no greater battle than the battle to delight in God more than you delight in anything else in the universe. The devil's main business is to deceive human beings into embracing other things as more satisfying than God. That's what he did in the garden. That's what he's been doing ever since. That's really all he wants to do. You know, sometimes people get all worked up about Satan's phenomena like nightmares or green things on the ceiling or voices or the shaking of a house, all of which are true in my judgment. Those things happen. And people will come to you absolutely terrified at what some horrible demonic experience they've had. And I generally say, you know, there's only one thing that can damn you. The failure to delight in God. Green things on the ceiling, shaking house, voices in the wind, nightmares are nothing. He can't hurt you. Unforgiven sin can hurt you. And that's the only thing. And sin is a failure to delight in God. And so you just you just settle people down and say, okay, you've got to fight these things. You've got to figure out a way to get these things out of your head, get your head straight. That's right. But if it doesn't, you're safe. Trust the one who will pluck you out of his hand someday because it's unforgiven sin that condemn you. And Christ has taken care of that. These other little things are neither here nor there. Ultimately, don't panic. I mean, the work of the cross really is a remarkable work. So I mean, this battle to delight in God is a battle that makes all other warfare, World War II, the battles today look like nothing by comparison. Now, here's the reason for that, is the reason that the battle for delight in God is so huge, so supremely important. Puts all other battles and warfare in the shade. You could say it in two ways. I'll say it in one and then divide it into two. 
It's because delighting in God is essential to glorifying God. And glorifying God is why God created the universe. I'll say that again. The reason this battle is the battle among all battles is because delighting in God is essential, not optional, to bringing him glory, to magnifying and displaying his worth, beauty, supremacy, and that display is why he created the universe. Therefore, the battle to delight in God is the battle to bring the universe into its own. That is why God created it, namely to display, exalt, magnify his manifold beauty. That's in another book, namely the end for which God created the world, which is probably the most important book of Edwards I ever read. He said, the glory of God is the last end for which he created the world. Or in another place, he said, all that is ever spoken of in the scriptures as an ultimate end of God's works is included in that one phrase, the glory of God. He has done everything from beginning to end for his glory. Now, this is a truth that in America today is neither widely known nor cherished. And I hope that this conference will be just another little step towards changing that tragedy. That God created the universe and does everything he does in redemption and providence to display his glory is not widely known or cherished in the church or in the world. And the corollary truth is even less known and cherished and even more important for living the Christian life, namely this truth, that delighting in God is essential to glorifying God. And let me read for you now the paragraph that perhaps is the most important paragraph in the writings of Jonathan Edwards that I have ever read. God glorifies himself toward the creatures in two ways. By appearing to their understanding and in communicating himself to their hearts and in their rejoicing and delighting in him and enjoying the manifestations which he makes of himself. And here comes the sentence, which is my whole passion and theology. God is glorified. Not only in his glories being seen, but by its being rejoiced in. That's all I have to say. I'll read it again. God is glorified not only by his glories being seen, but by its being rejoiced in. He gets glory when people rejoice in his glory. It grieves me when I hear for theologically peculiar reasons, pastors and theologians argue that God's glory can be maintained and spread without a passion for the affections to be awakened and kindled. It's so sad. 
It is so suicidal and sad. Continuing to read. When those that see it delight in it. God is more glorified than if they only see it. His glory is then received by the whole soul, both by the understanding and by the heart. God made the world that he might communicate and the creatures receive his glory and that it might be received both by the mind and the heart. He that testifies of his idea of God's glory. There's good reformed theology. He that testifies of his idea of God's glory doesn't glorify God so much as he that testifies also. Of his approbation of it and his delight in it. That's the most important paragraph I've ever read in Edwards. Changed everything in my life. Now we have two reasons for why the main battle in the universe is the battle to delight in God. And I mean this afternoon or tonight when you're going to bed. It is the main battle in Annapolis at Lowe's Hotel. It is the main battle you will face today. To delight in God above pornography. To delight in God above money. To delight in God above second helpings. It is the main battle that you will fight all your life long until... You are changed in the twinkling of an eye, and it is no more work or battle anymore. So here are the two reasons for that, why it's the main battle. Because delight in God is the root affection from which all others come and which give rise to holy behavior by which the world sees the glory of God. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven. Matthew five sixteen. And therefore, God means for us not only to have an inner delighting in God that intrinsically glorifies him, but an outer style of life that when the world looks at it, say, they must have a treasure different from mine. Money makes me do this, and food makes me do this, and sex makes me do this, and prestige and power make me do that, and they don't look like they're wired that way. What would that look like? It would look like having Christ as such a treasure, everything else is rubbish. That's not an easy life. It's just the happiest one on planet Earth. So I, I confused you there by... Putting two into one. Here are the two reasons why this is the main battle. One, delight is the fundamental affection of the heart which intrinsically shows God to be infinitely valuable. Secondly, it gives rise to the other affections which yield a behavior which makes the value of God more visible. And for those two reasons, the battle for delight is the main battle in the world. Now, this has enormous implications for preaching and counseling and personal devotions and missions and worship and every other aspect of life. And Edward spells out some of these implications for evangelism and for becoming holy or being sanctified um, 
And he says this. It's just amazing. I'm going to give you a quote that I didn't know was in Edwards until recently. And I love it and will make much of it from now on out. Um, This is not his words. These are mine. Our aim is to put people out of taste for the pleasures of sin. Preachers, counselors, lovers of human beings who converse with another human being that cover everybody. Your task in preaching, counseling, and conversing is to put people out of taste with the pleasures of sin. One of the great old Puritans said, my task is to put people out of taste with the bait of the devil. You see, you you can try to sanctify people in two ways. They bite down on the worm and they get hooked by the devil. And they come in to see you. They come to see you. Help me. I'm addicted. There's a better solution than getting them off that hook, which rips their jaws apart. Put them out of taste with the bait. Of course, it's a miracle, but God uses the word and prayer and love to do it. To put it positively, the task of preaching, counseling, conversations is to awaken an irresistible delight in all that God is for you in Jesus. And here's the way Edwards put it that I didn't know existed. This is a a sermon called The Pleasantness of Religion. And you know, whenever you read the word religion in Edwards, substitute Christianity. Otherwise, it's going to sound strange in our context. Uh, The pleasantness of being a Christian, the pleasantness of Christianity. Here's the sentence. He's talking about how to evangelize unbelievers. We come with double forces against the wicked to persuade them to a godly life. The common argument is the profitableness of religion. But alas, the wicked man is not in pursuit of profit. Tis pleasure he seeks. Now then... We will fight them with their weapons. That's good. That's really good. What does he mean by fight them with their weapons? We will fight pleasure with pleasure. Fire with fire. You think you've tasted desire? You haven't begun to be satisfied. I'll use sex-saturated, money-grubbing, power-pursuing Americans, right? That's the way we might say it. You haven't even begun to imagine what a holiday at the sea is like. In other words, we persuade them that Christ is a superior and lasting pleasure. And thus, we become like the Apostle Paul, who summed up his ministry in many ways, but in this way, I love. 2 Corinthians 1.24 Not that we lord it over your faith, But we are workers with you for your joy. This is what we ought to be for each other. We are workers, or we could say fighters, with each other for each other's joy. Have you got a strategy for maintaining your own delight in God and a strategy for awakening it in other people? If you don't, get Edwards and begin to plead with God for a strategy to how to win the main battle of the universe. And now comes the question I said I was going to address. 
Namely, how does this fundamental insight relate to the three holy, necessary sorrows of the Christian life? Repentance, self-denial, and reproaches. Edwards raises this question uh, in the middle of five arguments for the pleasantness of religion. This is a sermon he preached when he was 20 years old. Now, if you get put off by the fact that you don't want to read a 20-year-old, you're crazy. (laughs) Edwards knew and felt at age 20 what 99% of pastors don't know the day they die. I do not venture it as an overstatement. So don't blow off this 20-year-old. God had his hand on this man in an absolutely incredible way. This sermon, 1723, is a mind-boggling sermon for its insight into the nature of repentance, the nature of self-denial, and the nature of reproaches. He gives five arguments for why religion is a pleasant thing. And he makes two statements that simply amaze me. I read the first one to my wife, Noelle, last night, and it made no sense to her whatsoever. (laughs) And it didn't to me either on the first reading, and it won't to you. But I'm going to read it anyway. It just shows you the kind of work you have to do to profit from Edwards. uh, And I will paraphrase it after I read this unintelligible and convoluted sentence. (laughs) What he's responding to now is unbelievers who say Christianity means you must forego the best pleasures and believers who say Christianity brings so many sorrows, it may not be worth it. And Edwards responds to both of these very seriously. And here's his response to the first one. There is no pleasure, but what brings more of sorrow than of pleasure, but what the godly man either does or may enjoy. (laughs) Now, let me paraphrase that. There is no pleasure that godly people may not enjoy, except those pleasures that bring more sorrow than pleasure. It's hard enough when I say it, right? (laughs) Well, I'm going to say it again. In fact, I'll read his and mine again. There is no pleasure but what brings more of sorrow than of pleasure, but what the godly man either does or may enjoy. Now, here's my paraphrase. There is no pleasure that godly people may not enjoy, except... Those pleasures that bring more sorrow than pleasure. Here's the really provocative way to say it. The only pleasures that Christians may pursue and which they must pursue are maximum pleasures. Maximum both in terms of intensity and duration, like eternity we're talking here. I won't buy your 80-year-long pleasures and then hell. No, thank you. Not interested. I will buy maximum pleasures and eternal pleasures. I'm not interested in the deal. That's basically what he is saying. You may 
enjoy all pleasures except the ones that bring more of sorrow than of pleasure. And here's the second sentence that brings us toward repentance. He says to those who talk about, well, what about the sorrows of Christianity? Not the pleasures you may have to forego, but the sorrows. Quote, Christianity brings no new troubles upon man. But what have more of pleasure than of trouble? (gasps) I love this man. Oh, where do you read things like that? I'll read it again. Christianity brings no new troubles. And I heard you begin to groan with the untruth of that statement. How untrue it would be if it stopped there. Religion or Christianity brings no new troubles upon man, but those or what have more of pleasure than of trouble. Again, we're talking now maximum and duration here. Of course, Christianity makes your life miserable in many ways, which now leads me in the moving toward the end. What about repentance? Is there no sorrow? What about self-denial? Is there no pain? What about reproaches? Is that comfortable at work or on the mission field? What about these necessary and right sorrows in the Christian life? All right. Edwards addresses them. He's very keen to answer these kinds of questions. Here's what he says about repentance. There is repentance of sin. Though it be a deep sorrow for sin, sorrow. He's calling us to sorrow. Though it be a deep sorrow for sin that God requires as necessary to salvation, yet the very nature of it necessarily implies delight. Repentance of sin is a sorrow arising from the sight of God's excellency and mercy. But the apprehension of excellency and mercy must necessarily and unavoidably beget pleasure in the mind of the beholder. Tis impossible that anyone should see anything that appears to him excellent and not behold it with pleasure. And it's impossible to be affected with the mercy and love of God and his willingness to be merciful to us and love us and not be affected with pleasure at the thoughts of it. But this is the very affection that begets true repentance. How much soever of a paradox it may seem, it is true that repentance is a sweet sorrow so that the more of this sorrow the more pleasure. Close quote. I'll just ask you, where do you find that kind of reflection on the profundities of the Christian life today? Not, not very often. This is astonishing. Here's what he's saying. This just blew me away a few years ago when I first saw it. To bring people to the sorrow of repentance 
you must first bring them to see God as their delight. Otherwise, the tears are not for not having their treasure. Therefore, the fear of hell or the pain of psychological distress or some other fleshly pain. If the tears of repentance are to be truly God-honoring, they must come from a sense of how sweet and satisfying and wonderful is that which we lack. Which means, paradoxically and wonderfully, that preaching which would call a church to repentance must awaken a delight in God's value so that the tears will flow from how we haven't lived consistently with that value. Isn't that strange that you must first make people happy in God before they will cry correctly? It is an amazing thing. True sorrow over not having holiness is sorrow over the sin of not enjoying God. It's a sorrow for not having God as our all satisfying treasure. To be sorrowful over not having something in a way that honors that something, you must really want it for what it is. If a prisoner is found guilty and sentenced to jail, he may start crying. Those tears are totally ambiguous. They may be tears of genuine, heartfelt, brokenheartedness that he has offended against the law of the state, the law of his God, and has thus walked unworthily of such a precious God, or the tears might be that he has now realized he has lost 10 years' opportunity to do more evil. And it makes him sad. And the sadness is of no spiritual consequence. I'm a pastor. I sit with many weeping people. I never assume tears are good. Never. They may be, or they may not be. They may be pure self-pity. Here's what David Brainerd experienced in preaching to the Indians. And I'm drawing towards a close here. The word made powerful impression upon many in the assembly, Brainerd wrote in his journal. Especially while I discoursed of the blessedness of Lazarus in Abraham's bosom. This, I could perceive, affected them much more than when I spoke of the rich man's misery and torments. And thus it has been usually with them. They have almost always appeared much more affected with the comfortable than the dreadful truths of God's word. And that which has distressed many of them under convictions is that they found they lacked and could not obtain the happiness of the godly. In other words, Brainerd's experience in preaching for repentance was exactly what Edwards taught 20 years earlier, namely... When you lift up the beauties of Christ and the preciousness of the cross, more tears flow than when you preach hell and damnation. And we all know Edwards believed in preaching hell and damnation. (laughs) But he believed more in the awakening of authentic repentance by the lifting up of the beauties of the cross and the beauties of Christ and the beauties of God. And so uh, with regard to 
repentance, I think we can say there is no contradiction between saying the great battle of the universe is the battle for delight and in saying we must repent with a godly sorrow. Those are not at odds. And just a brief word about self-denial. I'll read you the quotes and Passover comment. Here's what Edward says about self-denial. Self-denial will also be reckoned amongst the troubles of the godly. But whoever has tried self-denial can give in his testimony that they never experience greater pleasure and joys than after great acts of self-denial. Self-denial destroys the very root and foundation of sorrow and is nothing else but the lancing of a grievous and painful sore that effects a cure and brings abundance of health as a recompense for the pain of the operation. So neither does self-denial contradict the big overarching principle that we are to fight for joy as the main battle of the universe. And finally, what about reproaches? He says that the believer who is reproached, quote, ordinarily can return into the arms of Jesus as his best friend with the more delight. Reproaches are ordered by God for this end that they may destroy sin, which is the chief root of the troubles of the godly man and the destruction of it, a foundation for delight. In other words, repentance and reproaches and self-denial all serve delight in God. So I close with these four application questions. I just give them to you because as I prayed, uh, I felt led to say what Edwards would like to see happen in this room and what God would like to see happen in this room, I believe, is not understanding the dynamics of repentance, but Repentance. That's what God would really like to happen here. So here are my application questions. Have we truly repented? Are you now truly repentant? That is, have we seen and savored and desired the glory of God in Christ so much that we grieve over not cherishing it as we ought? Are you grieved today? That you don't cherish Christ to the degree of intensity and consistency that he is worthy of. Does our delight in God waken sorrow for how easily we desire other things? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, O oh God, and seal it. Seal it for thy courts of love. Is that your heart cry? Seal me lest I wander away. Chain me, fetter me to yourself lest I go after the things, the good things and the bad things which are your competitors. Second question. Is our sorrow of our repentance, is the sorrow of our repentance a godly sorrow? That is, does it produce not the death of discouragement and paralysis, but rather a life of hope that God will be merciful to us and Christ died for us and will forgive us and help us to make progress in putting to death the, the old self and its desires. Does your repentance yield hope and not paralysis and discouragement? Third, are we practicing daily self-denial 
by making war on all of our desires that threaten to compete with God for supreme satisfaction? Are we engaged in the great battle of the world, the fight for supreme joy in God and God alone? And finally, are you willing to embrace reproaches for Christ? Because he is your best friend. And one smile from him is worth more than 10,000 frowns from the world. May God, through all this conference, work in us this one precious phrase that Paul used in 2 Corinthians 6.10 to sum up his life. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Let's pray. Oh, Father, you know how my heart longs to live up to what I have just said and how I grieve over my failures. I speak to my wife. I speak to my daughter. I respond to staff. I shrink back from duty again and again because I fail to delight as I ought to delight in your supreme beauty, value. So, Lord, I pray for myself and this assembly that we would fight with greater success now. Oh, Holy Spirit, leave us not to ourselves, I pray, but beget in us affections for the Father and the Son that are of you, Holy Spirit, and it will magnify them in this world that needs to see them so badly. Through Christ I pray. Amen.